Welcome to Trade Policy Comments with Christopher Fjellner, where we discuss the latest and most, according to me, interesting things happening in trade policy in Europe right now. And with me today, I have uh, another friend of mine, Hosuk Lee Makiyama, who is director, I think, at ESIP, the European Center for International Political Economy. Did I get that right? Absolutely. And the reason that I've asked you to join me here today is because I saw a video of you when you were called to give a speech on Brexit in the House of Commons. It was a geeky thing <laughs> where the real trade policy consequences and trade policy perspectives of Brexit were discussed in depth. And I thought, I'd like to pick your brain on exactly the same subject and thought it might be a good idea to actually share that with others. So welcome, Husuk. Thank you. Just to kick it off by something, what were your thoughts on the morning of June 24th, the day of the referendum? Well, the first reaction was probably same as many other people, is that probably a couple of pollsters need mm. to get fired because it was completely unexpected. I must admit that a couple of people who were working in the Remain campaign, who had done their own polls, had actually warned me that it looks very close, it looks 50-50. Mm. I must admit that I never really believed them. It was actually a big surprise. It's, of course, a, it's almost an existential disaster for the European Union. But as a trade geek, I must say, it's interesting times because suddenly the discussion and relationship between EU and the United Kingdom becomes a trade policy thing. Suddenly... People are getting interested in discussing trade policy in a way they haven't uh, before. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I graduated from school, I think trade was the number 45th most important mm. election issue. And I remember very well, it came right after federal funding for playgrounds in the US elections. <laughs> and now you see uh, trade being on the first page of newspapers. Brexit definitely contributes to that. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite interesting. But also it's quite scary. There's a lot of unraveling. There's a lot of things being torn down and a lot of things that I believe a lot of people are dedicated their careers to it, may actually come to an end. For the first time since the creation of the European Union as we know it, we are actually risking a real scenario where actually there may not be a EU as we know it mm. in, let's say, five to ten years. But looking at Brexit from a trade point of view, now we have exit negotiations and they will be complicated and interesting. But of course, we also have to somehow negotiate our trade relations between us. But looking at this and comparing these to other trade agreements and trade negotiations, it should be fairly simple, shouldn't it? Normally, when you start a trade negotiation, you look at market access, tariffs, and say, okay, what kind of tariffs do you have? Okay, I have these tariffs, and what tariffs do you have? I have these tariffs. Let's, in a mercantilist way, trade with each other and say that I lower mine if you lower yours. But in this case, the EU will say, what kind of tariffs do you have? I have no. What do you have? I have no. And then you could go on to non-tariff barriers. And then you ask, okay, what kind of rules do you have that are obstacle to trade? And we have none, they have none. So the starting point should be pretty good compared to most. Well, I think most lawyers will tell you that getting married is not that difficult at all. It's nope. the getting divorced that is the really difficult part that can mm. be both costly as well as devastating. I'm inclined to follow your example here. Mm. If it was a trade agreement that we are negotiating, but in fact, what we are doing now is that we are negotiating a divorce. And the question is, do we want to remain friends with privileges or do we want to be actually complete strangers? And 
And the problem with this divorce is the fact that nobody's actually moving. It will still be 43 kilometers or something between Dover and Calais. In a sense, we will have to live with each other. And I think our economies are so integrated that it, of course, is almost impossible to separate these Siamese twins. Yes, indeed. I mean, divorce is always difficult when there's children in the picture. And there are quite a few of them. I'm not only thinking about economic flows and people who live in the UK from Europe and vice versa, but also the institutions are built up in a way that they are intricate part of each other. I mean, if you look at the UK laws, uh, basically anything that relates to the market was actually drafted in Brussels, where UK was one of the drafters. Mm. So, no, indeed. And uh, on top of it, this has never ever been done before. Mm. And of course, it will set a lot of precedents. My experience from following trade policy is that any trade negotiations or any negotiation of any sort, for them to be successful, you have to have two things. First, you have to have a clear mandate, so you know what you want to achieve. And secondly, you need a broad political backing. Do you think we have any of those two things at hand, a clear mandate and a broad political backing for the mandate? Well, if I answer the easy question, which is about the political backing, I would say the election has spoken and you can't force anyone who wants to leave to actually stay. It's a political fait accompli. Mm. But at the same time, I would say um, Europe is now in a very sensitive state. We have crisis after crisis piling up. I'm not only thinking about Brexit, migration. We also have the euro crisis that was never settled. We have uh, many worrying things happen on the eastern border. Mm. Uh, We don't necessarily want to have worrying things happen on the western border either. In a situation like this, the political climate tends to go towards status quo. And status quo for Europe means, in the case of free trade agreements, it's not to do them. In the case of Brexit, the logic of status quo go the other way. Let's try to replicate what we already have, but within the package of Brexit. The referendum gave a clear mandate to leave the European Union. After you've left, then what? Indeed, I mean, the key question is, what is the objective? And uh, from Europe's perspective, it's really kicking the ball to the other side of the court Mm. by saying, you have to tell us what you want and we will see to make it happen. If I listen to what I hear from London right now, their interpretation of the mandate, so to say, that they got from the electorate, it's all about immigration. Yes and no. Uh, I mean... I'm pretty convinced that the history books will write about Brexit using a completely different vocabulary than how Brexit was discussed. If you know where Europe and the UK, the world is going, you will always find explanations later why something was happening. Certainly, migration was one. If you break down the votes, you'll basically see that most people voted against London. There's a very clear distinction in demographics and geography. Mm. People in the metropolitan areas voted to stay. People outside the metropolitan areas, they actually voted to leave. And another angle is, of course, UK's place in Europe. We are looking at a completely different entity than when UK joined the common market in 1973. It is possible to argue that 
if Europe is now going towards not only just a political union, but also a single market that is made out of common standards and uh, common rules, and where UK perceive that they have no influence of those rules because you have a French-German coalition that pretty much determines the agenda. You have two choices. Do I want to be a part of this? Or should I try my luck and leave and uh, before we get further integrated into the system? And uh, many uh, analysts will say that it's probably too late to leave. Yeah. We're already deeply embedded within the system. But Because it's fundamentally, to a large extent, the European Union is already a set of common standards and a lot of those yes, things indeed. is already... Yeah. I mean, there is a completely different approach in t- to the single market, let's say, of 80s and the 90s, where we actually tried to get rid of national barriers. And there was probably a tipping point around the millennium where we actually started to, rather than get rid of national barriers, we actually started to create common New, ones. Common ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But one of the most important things you do w- before entering any kind of negotiations in the area of trade is you sit down and look through your offensive and your defensive interest and see, okay, then with your offensive and defensive interest, you do the scoping exercise, seeing, okay, where can we meet? What can be achieved? If you would look at the British economy and if we were in a rational world, what do you think would be the offensive interests and defensive interests of Britain to start with? And then let's look at the European Union afterwards. Well, first of all, for Britain, I think the number one issue, if you're talking about it, the economy now is preserving as much a status quo as possible. I'm primarily thinking about, for example, trading goods. I thought you would start with financial services. Everybody starts with financial services and say, okay, that's the clear most... Well, I I, I would uh, argue against it for a couple of reasons. One is that the single market on services is the least developed one. Some would even argue that the internal market on services barely exist. If I look at the lobbying I get from British industry, the financial service sector, the banks, insurance companies, they are flooding my office right now and wanting to meet all the time to discuss passporting rights and the right to be active. Interesting enough, as you said, though, if you look at the British electorate, they don't seem too proud of City of London and there seem almost to be a driving part of Britain that has the feeling, okay, but all these bankers in the city of London, they can have it, you know. (laughs) But when I look at the British economy and the amount of GDP that's produced by the city of London, it's almost frightening. Yes, indeed. So isn't it a clear offensive interest? Well, it is. I mean, Mm. basically, the the services industry, or let's look at the banks first. Mm. On one hand, I'm not sure to what extent the indigenous banks are exposed in terms of risk from Brexit. Those who have business on the continent, they're already incorporated in one of the other member states. Mm. So they're already operating out of another country. The problems start actually for third countries, major banks like Citigroup out of the United States or the Japanese banks who uh, invested in London on the understanding that they are a part of the single market and they passport themselves into the continent to support their clients on the continent out of London. Mm. And now, unless uh, there is some form of adequacy through passporting or by other means, they would have to move. The other thing I would say that uh, for the services industry, you have two choices. Either you can stay as a member of the EEA 
mm. which is so called the Norway option, which means that you basically rubber stamp all the rules that comes out of Brussels, and therefore by having the same rules as the rest of the EU, you can continue to operate. Mm. The other way is uh, adequacy and passporting. Mm. And as a third country, you can certainly uh, apply to Brussels and other member states uh, saying that we have adequate rules. And obviously, UK at this current stage, they do because yeah. they, are they have our rules. So. <laughs> they have our rules for now. But this is a political decision yeah. that can actually take up to three, four years. Yeah. But don't you think that in the long term there would be a, a detrimental cost, maybe not in five years, maybe not in 10 years, but, but 15 years or not being a part of the European Union for London as a financial hub and center? There's been several threats to the London status as a financial hub. For example, when there was a euro vote and the UK decided actually to stay out of the euro corporation, it was deemed that it's going to be a big hit because you would have the uh, transaction cost of Mm. working out of London. uh, And London got through that, partly because of the, uh, the proximity to other services that is based in London. And I mean, part of the ecosystem. Of exactly. The ecosystem is very difficult to build up and replicate. The other thing is also UK has really favorable business environment and the cultural aspect, for example, that it is an English-speaking country. All these things matter. You started, which probably is reasonable to look at goods rather when it comes to offensive interest for the British. What sectors do you think What's been most prominently Mm. discussed is probably uh, the car industry. And it was rather shocking, for example, in Sunderland, where the biggest employer is Nissan. It's mainly Japanese building cars in the UK, is it? Yes, it's Toyota and, well, most and foremost, Nissan. Mm. And uh, 80% is exported to, uh, actually, to the rest of Europe. Mm. And uh, the more complex and complicated products you have, the more complex rules you have for rules of origin and the more uh, exposed you are to tariffs on the components and such. So it's one of the ones that's being mentioned, of course, and the machinery industry. But also people tend to forget simple things like farming. Yeah. You know, farmers, a traditional political base for the Tory party, they receive uh, subsidies and price guarantees from the European Union. And either you would need to replicate that within Britain, or if you cut them loose, that's going to create a major sensitivity within the UK economy. So you would say goods in general, but specifically cars, but also remind people that agriculture is also an important offensive interest. And then there are certain sectors in the financial sector that you think are offensive interest and have a big stake in this. Is there anything else that you think one should think of when you look at at the UK economy and think of what their bid would be in their negotiating position? I mean, the the list of uh, foreign invested firms in UK is endless. Pharmaceutical is another chemical extractive industry you can go on and everyone has some kind of a sensitivity and dependency towards Brussels which makes actually an impact extremely difficult to foresee and one thing that a lot of people forget about is also the uh, the role of investment UK doesn't necessarily uh, live off exporting no 
it lives of uh, being a really attractive destination for foreign investment. Mm. And this is the reason why, for example, you have the pharmaceuticals or the banks that we mentioned before. And that is really getting a dent. <laughs> if you look at the European Union, what do you think are our most clear offensive interests? As you were saying in the onset, I think you're probably right that this is for the uh, EU, first and foremost, a political imperative to try to preserve the union as we know today. And besides from the political objective of trying to maintain the status quo and minimize the economic disruptions of Brexit, there is also the political disruptions that Brexit have caused. We want to set an example to make sure that no more country leaves the union. Just to say on that for a while, because I think that's one of the things that I'm thinking the most of. From a rational free traders' point of view, as in all trade negotiations, the best thing you can do is actually do unilateral concessions. Even if their defensive interest is to say, okay, we don't accept any free movement of people, so therefore young Swedes can't go and work there in a cafe or bar. They seem to be focused more on Poles and others, but still. Even if they would do that, from an economic point of view, I would still be inclined to say, yeah, but you will anyhow get a passporting right for your banks, you will have a free movement of, of everything and free access to the European Union's internal market from a purely economic point of view. But as always in trade negotiations, you become a free trader caught in the mercantilist system where you have to do tit for tat because that's the way you do negotiations. But, but in this case, there is a downside for giving unilateral concessions that you normally can't see in a trade negotiation because in this case, if you would give them too sweet a deal, and you would do that because you know there's a GDP cost connected to actually being tough on them for the Swedish, the European economy, because we will lose out if we start introducing barriers to the UK. But even though there's a cost to that, not doing that, and then having the risk that someone else follow their example, the cost of that would be even bigger, so to say, <laughs> if Denmark or Poland or whoever would say, it seems to be easy to get a sweet deal from Brussels, so let's follow their example. Indeed, there's actually less of a quid pro quo mm. in this negotiation. I'm not even sure whether we should call it a FTA negotiation or trade negotiation. This is actually something different. Maybe a divorce is a better example. Of. Yeah, and whenever you divorce someone, you want to make it as expensive as possible for the other side, but you don't necessarily want to cause too much damage. We are not negotiating a Treaty of Versailles here, if no. you see what I mean. And uh, so, no, there is a um, reasonable amount of common objective, which is something that you need. But the key problem is that we haven't really yet set out, amongst all the options that are on the table, where do you want to go? And as you're saying, if we create a platform which is somewhere between a EU membership and being a total stranger, you may actually incentivize other countries to say, actually, that's a very nice platform to mm. be on. It's not only about existing EU member states, but also we have a range of countries who were probably um, pretty desperate to join the European Union, let's say, 10, 20 years ago who may not necessarily feel so anymore. Uh, I'm not only talking about EA countries, but also accession countries and Turkey, and uh, who might actually think that this middle station is, seems like a very good place to stop. Um, we lose a lot of soft power. That's been a, one of the biggest soft power instruments the European Union has had in our neighborhood policy, using the prospect of membership to actually do internal reform. And force Indeed. Them to 
One could, of course, also argue that not even membership has a, a destination because it's an evolving thing and the European Union has been evolving for a long time. But if one would still look at the options that the British have and that we have together, normally they've been called soft Brexit or hard Brexit. And I think in a sense, that's, of course, a little a stupid way of describing it because it entails a world in between those and within mm. those two options. But if one would still use the terminology soft Brexit, for example, most people then would compare it to Norway, Turkey or, or Switzerland, for example, their mm. relationship to the European Union. Is it a credible alternative for the British to go down any of those three routes? Well, there is a downside with each of them. Mm. And I think if you look at, for example, EEA, the so-called Norway, Norway option, is that, yes, you have duty cuts, but you still have rules of origin. For example, Norway, only 30% of their trade actually uses EEA benefits. Yeah. Because a lot of SMEs and even large companies are saying, we couldn't bother to use these preferences because they're just too complicated. Yeah, with the rules so, of origin. Yeah, so they just prefer... And that is pay. something that's clearly hampered their industrial base and, and actually industrial development, which they suffer from specifically Norway right now when, when the oil price is going down that they haven't yeah, too much yep. of the industrial base. Yes, you're right. And also it buys the hands of uh, the UK if it wants to negotiate new agreements, be it mutual recognition agreements on regulations with other countries than Europe, because you can't do them, (laughs) because the regulations are set and banned by Brussels. Whereas, on the other hand, if you look at the Turkey option, customs union, union, because you have common tariffs, basically what you have is that you have almost 100% utilization of Mm. uh, these benefits, because you don't have to qualify, you automatically qualify for these duty cuts. However, they can't negotiate tariffs with third countries. So um, you have pros and cons. And um, therefore, it's a question of uh, where does UK's future trade position Mm. most align itself with Europe going Mm. forward? If they think that they can actually shadow behind EU tariffs without too much cost then, of course, Turkey option is the best one. And if you think that you will shadow behind EU regulations, then obviously they're going to go for the so-called Norway option. The so-called hard Brexit, which Mm. is advocated by Brexiteers, it simply means snapping back to WTO preferences, which is basically no preferences. They just happen to have a common tariff schedule with Mm. the EU, so most of them can be copy-pasted. The key problem is tariff rate quotas. Exactly, and tariff rate quotas is more or less how much beef and how much sugar are you going to allow in tariff quota free, for example? Yeah, Europe mm. together as EU28 has a quota on uh, beef with Canada, US, mm. Australia. You have quotas on dairy, you have uh, quotas on sheep meat and sugar with Brazil and so forth, so forth. And these need to be split up. And uh, you might think this is a relatively easy exercise. You know, let's just look at how many percent that, you know, UK buys currently mm. of, let's say, New Zealand quotas of uh, sheep meat, which is, I think, 220,000 tons mm. per year. And uh, so if it's, I'm just throwing out a number, yeah. but let's split it at 30, 70, just yeah. to try a number. But the problem is that, you know, 
if you're on the other side, if you're one of uh, Brazil, New Zealand, and Australia, and the US and Canada of the world, you may not agree to 3070 because yeah. you simply think, actually, that's not the same thing as having 100 because you lose the flexibility. Yeah. If, let's say... You can see that the potential, you might think the potential is bigger here or there. That Yeah, but what happens if that changes and yeah. seasonalities and so forth? So one year, and you know, UK might simply decide to just buy 25 and you want to actually use the remaining five to sell to Europe. You lose the flexibility. Now everybody talks about how they will be able to get agreement and unanimity among the 27 remaining EU member states. Mm. But to actually sort out your schedules with the WTO, you have to get agreement with 160-something members of the WTO, which also needs unanimity to set their schedules right. Yeah. Is it correct that they... They have that negotiation as well. Well, I apologize for the pun, but you know, if you have some form of unsettled beef with either EU or the UK, now is the time to be very, very difficult. And I can find a couple of countries, Argentine, <laughs> that has a, a number of unsettled things with, yeah. with the UK. The good news is probably that the EU and the UK will be on the same side. This is a joint challenge in a sense. Yeah, because actually, theoretically we, speaking, then the UK could say, we just leave and leave you with a tariff-free quota. Well, because it is actually the EU's tariff. What, what the EU will then say is that no, you aren't. There's going to be a little bit of child support that you need to pay. Yeah. And uh, so I don't think that would happen. But basically, whatever settlement you would find between Brussels and London has to be agreed with the rest of the WTO membership. Mm. Now, as we we're saying, you know, anyone from Argentina to Cuba to uh, Brazil may actually have a different point of view and say that actually we have some something unsettled here. So therefore, we would actually um, not agree to the proposal you have tabled. And it only takes one dissenting voice in the WTO membership, uh, in the General Council, in order to basically block the decision to mm. agree on the new WTO schedule for the UK. Well, the good news is that Europe is actually negotiating a free trade agreement with most of the countries yeah. that has a quota. So you find a different venue for settling those outstanding issues. Even if someone is not 100% happy, you might actually get 105 or 110 mm. that you would like to have these flexibilities by renegotiating the quotas in an FTA. But when you listen to the Brexiteers, a lot of the argument is like, OK, we're stuck in Europe. We can't negotiate our own FTAs in a way that benefits us. But when I listen to you, a lot of the things that they will have to do is replicate EU tariffs in the WTO, that they will have to negotiate things together with the EU, with the rest of the world. And fundamentally, if I have it correctly, all the free trade agreements they have today is actually done through the European Union, which means that they will have to renegotiate each and every FTA that they have and enjoy today with the rest of the world. Yeah, indeed. Due to the fact that um, they leave the European Union. It seems like they will still be pretty anchored into EU trade policy, even when leaving, so to say, to be able to do it in an orderly and, and, and timely way. Well, I, there are, I think there are three elements that need to fall into place. One is the actual divorce, mm. the Article 50 negotiations, and what kind of relationship UK wants to have with Europe. Once that is settled, we can pretty quickly at least propose the new terms for the WTO membership, and which is, as I said, mostly about TRQs. Mm. And the rest is a legal exercise that might actually take two or three years. It took a good part of the last decade 
actually to integrate the Eastern European yeah. countries into the um, EU schedule. So actually separating the UK might actually take quite some time for us. So the, after WTO, and you have also the grandfathering of uh, the existing FTAs. Mm. I believe the, the correct term is not grandfathering, it's called transitioning. Mm, mm. <laughs> but um, it's basically a euphemism for grandfathering. But do you I think realistically speaking, what the, what, what the UK will do is to talk to all the countries that the EU today has a FTA with and ask if they can actually trade on the basis of the same yeah. yeah, more or less grandfather. Which yeah. again goes runs a little bit counter to the Brexiteers' general approach to say that now we're going to do arrange a new trade policy for Britain that will benefit Britain and will not be an EU-adopted trade policy. Well, that might very well come later, but yeah. in the end, you don't want to lose the preference you have. That's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that the, if you're going towards an independent trade policy, which trade agreements do you want to do? Mm that Europe cannot do or Europe will do in a different way than you want to do. And there, I think, the burden of proof is with the Brexiters. And uh, they are saying, oh, we want to do a free trade agreement, let's say, with the United States. And even if you would have a president-elect that would be so inclined, I'm not really sure it's in the interest of the UK to negotiate with the United States. Why why would, because that's... If you read the newspapers, there's a lot of, of, of news about whether there will be an FTA between the UK or the US. When Obama was in, in London, he said you will be at the back of the queue. But now people say, well, maybe Trump will move them to the front of the queue again. And, and that's the things where... Well, I mean, it's one thing to say if United States want to move it in a back front in the middle of the queue. That is almost irrelevant, at least compared to the question, do you want to have a free trade agreement with the United States? Why wouldn't they want a free trade agreement? Well, the UK's biggest trade surplus is with the United States. It's at 35 billion pounds. Why on earth would you risk that? Hmm. Why would you risk your biggest trade surplus that you have? It just makes absolutely no sense. But it's interesting because the British trade minister, Liam Fox, is traveling around the world asking for free trade agreements with everybody. But it seems like not that many seem inclined to start negotiations. I heard that the Japanese, for example, he asked to have a free trade negotiation with the Japanese and the Japanese answered with a 15-page letter or something saying that rather, no, 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 before you actually think about a free trade negotiation with us, can you please before that secure the following and long, 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 long list of things when it comes to access to the single market and to protect the investment that we've already done in Britain. Do you think there will be a, a long line of countries lining up to do FTAs with Britain? Or do you think they'd rather say, no, 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 let's grandfather what we have with the EU and from that on we just... Well, many countries have taken a similar position as the Japanese, I think, mm. which means that you have to sort out your current relationship with the EU before we can actually decide on anything. One aspect is, of course, that a number of countries have firms that have invested in uh, the UK with the understanding that they are going to be a part of the single market. Mm. The other element of this is that why would you negotiate with someone unless you know exactly what you're going to get? I mean, why would you start negotiating over things that you may actually get for free? depending on what the WTO schedules will look like, and especially for the agricultural uh, exporting countries. I think it's uh, fundamental, at least to see a landing zone in terms of what UK baseline will be. 
because that will determine the first bit of any trade negotiation. And then I would probably say also that whether you negotiate with UK first or EU first is really depending on what kind of relationship uh, UK will have. So, for example, if you go for a Turkey-like option, basically what you have is that you know if you negotiate with the EU, you have automatically negotiated with uh, UK as well, yeah. because Turkey just simply adopts or forced to adopt EU tariffs on uh, manufactured goods. So therefore, what you do is that once you're done with the uh, EU negotiation, or, or at least in parallel with the EU negotiation, you would negotiate with a country like Turkey, mm. who's a part of the customs union. Some countries would negotiate, for example, with the EFTA or the EEA countries first as a practicing round. Most famous example is probably uh, the Chinese. They negotiate mm. with Switzerland first. And this goes along the pure logic of sequencing. I mean, what trade strategy will tell you is that you will negotiate it with a small entity who will give you the best bid, yeah. who will put most on the table. And we, from Europe, we did the same thing. We negotiate with Korea exactly. before we negotiate with Japan. Mm. And we will definitely conclude a trade agreement with Japan before we start, start thinking, thinking about, about China. China. Yeah. And the Chinese are probably thinking the same way about us. Yeah. So uh, if we see something that looks more like, let's say, a uh, EA option or even a hard Brexit, you might be inclined to say that you know the UK is going to be the practice round or the appetizer. Mm. But what you describe clearly points out the fact that it will take years and years and years before we see a truly independent British trade policy. First, they have to sort out the divorce with the EU. In parallel, and maybe even beyond that, they will have to sort out their obligations with the WTO. And then you will have to sort out the grandfathering or not grandfathering of existing FTAs just after that, which might be like not only two, four, five, seven years down the road, you might start thinking about an independent British trade policy. Well, at least in terms of sequencing and trade agreements. Mm. And uh, the main focus now is probably to find the transitional arrangements, as we discussed, and establish the WTO membership and so forth. But the key questions that I don't think the Brexiteers in particular have answered is that if you want this policy space and you crave it so much, you also need to answer what is that UK can do so much better without the help of EU. And if you go through the tariff lines of the UK, given that UK is a quite diverse economy, it's not like a Singapore or it's not Hong Kong. Given that you have agriculture, you have every aspect of manufacturing, and you have a huge services economy, it's not that given that it will be so different than the EU tariff schedule. Mind you that most EU tariffs are zeroed in a negotiation with the third country. And I would not necessarily see that UK would have any sensitivities or areas they would be able to go beyond the uh, EU. And that also includes agriculture. You know, if you cut off UK dairy farmers from the common agriculture policy and EU subsidies, I'm not really sure to what extent you to have zero tariffs on dairy. (laughs) Exactly, or agree on the major quotas on dairy and beef with, let's say, Australia or United States. I I don't necessarily see that their incentives would be different than the EU, at least, if I put it that way. And on services side, you could argue that many offensive interests 
that EU had had, they were driven, of course, by the UK. But once it is independent, it's not necessarily given that it will be 100% offensive. And would you be able to put this sovereignty or the policy space that you have carved out, would you be able to put it immediately up for renegotiation with a bigger country, let's say United States or China? Or for that matter, would UK be able to negotiate them better without the help of the EU? I'm not really sure. We've now dug into many, many aspects of Brexit. My last question would be, if you and I would meet here in, let's say, five years, do you think that Brexit would be a fact that they would have left? And do you think that they would have sorted out their trade negotiations with the rest of the world through the WTO and with the existing FTAs? Or do you think we would still be work in progress? I think within five years, as long as UK knows what it wants to achieve through the Brexit, you can implement most things. Do you think they know that? And do you think they will be able to know that in five years? I think we will know much sooner. I Mm. think we are now months away between the soft Brexit line versus the hard Brexit line. And I think we have come to a situation where basically one side have to cave. Mm. And it's not really about economics. It's not about law. This is completely irrelevant. This is about pure politics. You have one camp of the Tory party that has committed itself towards a smooth transition. Other one has committed itself towards a hard Brexit. In the end, this is a civil war inside the Tory party that has been transposed into the UK and actually the and entire to Europe. Europe. And maybe through the WTO to the world. Yeah, no, indeed. And in a sense, I think we'll very soon see which side of the camp within the Tory party that will prevail. Hmm. Thank you very much, Uzuk. I think I'm, uh, as too often, still confused, but on a higher level. He who lives will see whether Brexit actually meant Brexit and whether it will actually be reality in five years or not. Will be interesting. Thanks a lot. Yeah.